remember waking up going, well, I asked the surgeon just to say it as it was. And he was great. He just told me the two choices. You know, if the tumour came back malignant, I was stuffed. And if it didn't, you know, my face would be impaired. And I just thought, well, that's all right. We're still not dead. Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Sky Manson. I'm your host for this episode. So nice to be back with you. When I've observed today's guest from afar, usually at an ag conference or something like that, I feel she's akin to rural Australia's version of the Queen, always impeccably dressed, a woman of strength who's practical, like a farmer, in her solutions. And it seems to me that the crowd almost parts when she enters the room. Robbie Sefton lives with her husband, Alistair, on a farm close to Tamworth. From town, she runs her national communications business, Sefton's. It's been strategising policy, product and service campaigns for government, research organisations and some big corporates like Woolworths and Westpac for more than 30 years. But Robbie's story spans from a childhood rabbiting in the wild bush in Denny to dazzling Frio in WA in the Alan Bond days where she survived on champagne and a freezer full of connoisseur ice creams to an unexpectedly arduous medical procedure in which she was lucky to survive and then back home to New South Wales again, but not before she trucked thousands of sheep across the Nullarbor. Her story is not one bit as I expected it to be. So I was the the gal that had lived in Frio, in Fremantle, in a really cute little two-storey bank. I was like Patsy and Eddie all rolled into one. Um, A freezer full of connoisseur ice cream and champagne. That was it, really. My life was fun. I thought it was all fun. It was hard work, really hard work. Amazing. So yeah, but that yeah, they were the days. And so that was how Sefton's that was sort of its beginning. When you started out, it, it wasn't particularly ag focused. It was more marketing. Yeah, but it was always agricultural products. So that was dairy. And then it became far more strategic. So we moved, we um, had a farm in Kojanup, which was Alistair's family farm that we bought, and then we sold that and bought a farm in New South Wales at Coonabarabra. And so we, we were like the Griswolds and packed up 6,000 sheep and headed across the Nullarbor with border collies and ponies. And off we went. If we for a big brand new adventure and bought a really run-down farm. Um, and then I started my business. And then we started doing a lot of work with Telstra before it became Telstra Countrywide. So they, they worked with us to understand what it was like to live and work in rural and regional Australia. So I ran the business from the homestead and that was a long while ago and that was very unusual. So our businesses always run remotely. So there's days of COVID and everyone's been going, oh my God, how are we going to cold? We just go, mate, just get on with it. We've, we've been doing it for 25 years, 30 years. So, and they were the days before the internet. Like it was just wild, telephones fax machines oh my god it makes me feel old you know and if you're working in the bush in those days doing what we did you were seen as a bit of an oddity really like and stranger than fiction but back in those days there weren't many women 
running independently running their businesses at a national level like what I was and also for large corporates and government like what I did as well so I just thought it was normal but then I always do think things are normal when they're not as I sit here talking to you in a stairwell in an airport <laughs> <laughs> waiting for security to come and bust me so um yeah so it you just I guess in my day it, I just always find a way, whatever we need to do, we just find a way in, with a lot of authenticity and credibility and integrity. And is that how you cut through that, just using uh, tenacity and authenticity? Yep, we had to be smart. And also we just made sure that we turned up, you know. You know, I often hear sometimes women saying, oh, how can I get here? How can I do this? It's just like never giving up and turning up and also having something to say and having a presence that is meaningful and purpose purposeful so that you need to be able to contribute and you need to be able to do that with authenticity integrity and also knowledge so you have to have knowledge around what it is that you're there for can we take a step back because i'm so interested and i did not know that your husband lived initially in Kojanup and that you lived in Western Australia. How did you, how many trucks did it take to get your 6,000 sheep across the Nullarbor? <laughs> well, that was also a bit of groundbreaking because no one ever did that in those days. So we went to a contractor. So we prepared the sheep first. So they were um, sort of fed pellets and things beforehand just to prepare them a bit like live sheep export. They get prepared. So, um, we hired a company that had a couple of doubles and we used the same drivers each time. So we watched the weather and we only, so it was over about six weeks that we took the sheep across and with the two trucks at a time. And so they'd go across, come back, and then we'd just wait for the season, for the weather to be right again. So it was in autumn going into winter, so it wasn't too hot. So we lost one ram, one old ram really. So we're really lucky. Why did you do that? Such a huge move. Just an adventure. We'd bought our farm, we'd saved up and bought the farm and had a lot of debt. And so Alistair worked on oil rigs around the world and I had just, I was working and running my business. And it was a startup, so we didn't have much, neither of us had any money. So anyway, we put some money together and bought the farm. And then we wanted to get a bit bigger, but we, it was too expensive. So a friend of ours from the East told us about this property. So Alistair jumped on a plane, put his hand up at the auction at the Imperial Pub in Coonabarabran, and he was the only bidder. So it's like we weren't expecting to buy it. He just wanted to go over and drink some beer with his mate. So um, anyway, so he came back with farm. Anyway, so that was really a great challenge. So off we went on a new adventure. So we're sort of, we sort of live our lives with a bit of adventure. We sort of plan, but at the same time, we, we don't. We do and we don't, if you know what I mean. We are open for possibility. And that's been one of the joys of my life and certainly his life. We work really hard, but we love it. And we create our own destinies. We really do. And we've lived through some pretty tough times and certainly financially, certainly with drought and um, like now like climate change. And certainly we work as a really powerful team, even though we're very different and I don't work day to day on the farm and um, I keep coming up with new ways of doing things. Maybe we could do the drench the sheep this way or maybe it's like, Robbie, 
just do the job we're here for okay i'll do the job i'm here for so <laughs> as you can see there's always blues in the sheep and cattle yards as everyone knows oh dear the very best of times um absolutely <laughs> how often do you get to pull the work boots on now oh, every weekend so i'm home on weekends but now that covid's been here i've been home a lot like i've but you know i've traveled a lot in the past like before covid you know 200 to 250 flights a year which is a lot that's too much so that's been going on for 15 20 years so um, but every weekend I'm in the paddock doing something. Robbie, I wanted to rewind right back to the beginning to your childhood. Tell me a little bit um, about that. How, what was your childhood like? Oh, it's great. I lived in, I grew up in Daniloquin on a farm just near town or 30 k's out of town. It was a rice property with sheep and cattle and um, loved it. We were wild bush kids, rabbiting, riding wild ponies, getting dumped from a naughty pony every day. Um, barefoot, happy, fun, working hard. So we all worked. We all would, had to be responsible for our decisions at a young age, which is sort of good. Didn't know any different. But it's really helped us in our adulthood. Um, we sold that farm and moved into town when I was about 10 or 11-ish. Can't quite remember, but um, then we bought another farm about five k's out of town. It was still an irrigation property and cattle and sheep. And we used to ride our ponies into town and we'd be like the Griswolds. Um, seriously, it was like the Griswolds, the Beverly Hillbillies. So we had three ponies in the backyard, six sheepdogs, chooks and, you know, ducks, whatever, in a, just in a townhouse. And all the neighbours, when we moved to town, we were just like magnets. So all the neighbours, we, it, so we all rode ponies around the town, went down to the river and swam in the river with the ponies and just rode the horses everywhere. Really. We'd go down and do the shopping on the horses. I got a paper job for delivering papers when I was 13. I was the first paper girl ever in Denny. Um, and so I used to do it, often do it on the horse. So that'd be quite good fun. But not so good when the horse played up. But anyway, so we had to be, I, if I wanted a horse, I had to pay for everything. So I had to pay for its feed, its shoeing, my saddle, my bridle, everything. So I had to find a way to afford the horse. So I had three jobs at 13. And um, so, yeah, went to pony club. It was fun. But we were, we were just very independent kids. Well, we had to be because, you know, our parents taught us that way. What did your parents do? Farmers, pretty much. And then mum um, worked in town. Um, she was an amazing dressmaker, so a designer, in fact. So you'd get a magazine or Vogue or something in those days and go, oh, I really like that dress, Pam. Could, what do you think? She'd go, oh, I'll make that for you. So she'd cut a pattern from the picture and make it. It was just, so we just wore the most beautiful clothes that were just like high fashion, high-end fashion in Tanakan. Whatever, you know, a bit like the dressmaker, really, that book. Only joking, it's not at all like that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, she was very talented. And so she used to do a lot of dressmaking, made a lot of wedding dresses for people. She's quite famous for that. And then she worked as well in um, an, a community home for young adults that were intellectually disabled. And they all lived in a collective home and she used to manage that and help and be one of their 
key carers, there was a group of three women that did that and she was the manager of that but also did the, the lived-in work. So it was great and we used to all get involved in that as well. So, yeah, so the one thing about my family upbringing was that everyone was treated the same, no matter who you were, no matter where you came from, no matter what you did, whether you're an Indigenous Australian um, or whether you were um, a person with some disabilities or whether you came from the right side of the railway tracks or any side of the railway tracks, you're all treated the same. And it was great. And it was, it's given us great values. We've got all got strong, caring and responsible values. Difficult father, Les was very demanding, quite challenging, but that taught us all to be very strong and assertive and capable. In hindsight, who of your parents do you think has influenced you the most in the person that you've become today? I think both, mm. yeah. I probably get my... Sometimes I deal with some very challenging people in the work I do. I've just chaired the socioeconomic assessment for the Murray-Darling Basin. So it's a very big project and a very demanding leadership role, which meant that I came up against some very um, strong people with very strong views and they behaved uh, overtly um, with their views publicly in meetings. So I look to, I, I draw on the strength that my father provided me in that situation, how to deal with big blokes that have got strong views and how to manage the, the situation in a calm, responsible way that could move it forward. So I learnt that from my father. From my mother, I've learnt patience and tolerance and playing the long game and that caring kindness aspect from her. I'm still learning patience and tolerance. It's probably an area that I've still got a little bit of way to go with. <laughs> so Robbie, tell me about schooling life and education. Did you love learning and education or did you, did you hate it? That's oh, a good question. School for me was interesting. I love being at school, as in I love being around the kids. I love being, I love people and I really love working in teams, as I've said before. So I loved sport. I was good at sport, like most country kids are, pretty good at sport. And then we also enjoyed school. But I got to about year nine, and I think I didn't know this, but apparently it's a bit of a thing in year nine that you sort of either keep pushing forward or you just, you know, don't always engage. I got so bored with school. And, you know, at the age of 16, you know, I just found it boring. I was quite smart, but I didn't work very hard. And I was at the Denny High School. So it was a good school and 800 kids. So it was quite a big school. You know, we were those sort of, you know, they were, we all rode ponies together. We were the wild kids. We did ag science and we went out to the ag plot, you know. So we, I don't know, we just had fun. We found joy in everything we did pretty much. But we, I found it boring. And at the age of 16, I ran a BNS. So I was one of the was quite, they were quite elegant in those days. And I ran out, had a budget of $60,000. It was amazing at the age of 16. I knew nothing about, you know, whatever. But I did enjoy getting a band from Melbourne and then doing a, another band the next day on the back of a truck at the recovery. It was amazing. I'd never run anything like that. 16, I just turned 16. There was a few of us involved in it. It was really good fun. So I was too busy doing other things rather than, you know, and so I left school 
um, early. I didn't even finish year 12. I just, it just didn't suit me. I just, it didn't work for me. And I just, I wasn't strategic about it. It wasn't an issue. I just got this fantastic job at our vet clinic with two vets and myself. And I just loved it because I loved animals and I was great with people. And then these two young guys bought it who are 21. So there were three of us under 22 or under 21 and we just turned it on its ear. Just, it was so much fun. Loved it, worked really hard, turned the practice around. It had beers on Friday night with the jackaroos on the operating table, but they had to come and buy Dronset tablets to come in. And so it was fun, you know, life was fun. And it always has been for me ever since. Like I just create opportunities or fun. Did you ever think about at that stage what you wanted to become or you just led by your nose? No, no idea. No idea what I wanted to become. And in those days, not everyone went to uni either. You know, if you went to uni, you sort of needed quite a bit of money. I didn't have any. And not that I couldn't, I could have gone, absolutely. Um, but then I went and travelled around Australia with a girlfriend in a little red Subaru ute where we jillarooed our way right around Australia. And we just thought that was normal too. But as the further north we got, the more we realised that there weren't many women doing that up there. And we got up to the Gulf of Carpentaria working on some really big cattle stations. And, you know, the ringers would put us on these brumbies that would buck out of the yards and off we go. So it was pretty hard yakka. And then we went buffalo hunting in the Territory, which was just fantastic. Oh, my God, I love that. And then went across to the Kimberley and worked in the Kimberley on, a very, on some very big stations, which we loved. And then back down to Perth, which I fell in love with because it was a great city. And it was like a big country town, so I felt quite comfortable. And then we got back to Denny and um, I wasn't going to settle back in Denny. I was about 21-ish. When did you meet... Alistair, is that the next, is, is that the sequence or did, was there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went back to, so I went back to Perth on, had $70 after I bought my one-way bus ticket. Took two, something like 72 hours to get across the Nullarbor in a bus. God, it was a long trip. Anyway, it was a bit of an adventure. And I moved in with these two great girls that I'd met on my way over. And um, there's a famous pub there called the OBH, anyone that knows mm. Perth and Cottesloe, which is just a cool beach suburb. The OBH is where all the country people drink. And I met Alistair there, very handsome, standing underneath the Marlborough poster um, at the cigarette machine, having a beer. And so I thought, oh, my God, drop dead gorgeous. So anyway, we met, went to a wild party or two. And, um, and he was working in the Great Sandy Desert on oil rigs. So... He was a bit like me in some ways, like he loved the land and loved farming, but also didn't necessarily have a right of passage to go back to farming. So he worked hard and I was working for a marketing company then that was a fabulous job. Um, was my first real job and these two women started a marketing company and they did a lot of work for Alan Bond. And so I then called? stepped... Um, it was called Performer Marketing and um, these two women were ex-Hilton executives out of Perth and they were, which I didn't know at the time either, but they were the first and only executives in Hilton in Australia as women. One was the sales manager and one was the um, um, event manager. That wasn't her title then, I can't actually, the conference manager I think it was. And they started this business and I was the secretary that couldn't type 
And, um, but anyway, between the three of us, we sort of had this great business where we did all of Alan Bond's, you know, we did his gold mine openings. We did his big five-star hotel openings. And so we did a lot of event management and a lot of um, major activities for him and for other of people like him. So Perth at the time was going off because of the America's Cup. And that was the place where all of the wealth was pretty much in Australia with the mining and sector. So, you know, big names, big bucks. So I was this country girl. I had two homemade dresses and a stick of lipstick, you know, thanks Pam for the dresses. <laughs> so, you know, I moved into this world that was just fascinating. Um, I just didn't really participate in it as much as I could have and I chose not to. But I was, I loved it. It was great fun. I enjoyed it. But I didn't play like they all played. It was a different world to mine. And I, I was happy to just watch it, observe it and work in it. It was great. Just loved that work. And then I got my dream job, which was working for the Wool Corporation as their marketing manager, again in Perth. But I had a national, had national responsibilities with that role and worked for both in the apparel area the te home in home textiles as well as um with growers with wool growers it was just my dream job and then we were all made redundant when the reserve price scheme mm. collapsed and they shut down offices around the world so and that's when i started my business so i was 28 we'll be back in just a moment but now a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone tested by every generation since 1870. Age 28, you, I think you'd been married for a short time and your life did change um, significantly. Can you lead me through um, what happened to you? Sure, sure, Sky. I, look, I was very fortunate. I um, had a little lump under my ear, which um, unbeknownst to a surgeon or myself, that was a, a significant tumour, which was, which when operated on, had left me with some facial paralysis, so half of my face not working, and um, my eye being drooped and loss of hearing, um, not total, but a little bit of loss of hearing, and um, fortunate to come out of that alive and well. Um, it took a few quite a few months to recover and my best friend was a speech pathologist and so she helped me to get my speech back again and get talking and um because of the the paralysis that had sort of affected 
just my face, really, but it also affected some of my speech. Um, but certainly not my brain or anything. So it's just, it was only just visual. Um, I was very fortunate. So I was the girl that had 12 sticks of red lipstick and um, and things. So I, it just, yeah, so it, 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 the surgeon was terrific. You know, it was a, like an eight-hour surgery that was meant to be 15 minutes. So poor Alistair and Catherine, my best friend, when, you know, I was woke up, everyone was, it was hard yakka for all of us to, to go, holy dooly, come from this extraordinary world of, and a great life of full independence and to to this, which was sort of fine. Like I remember waking up going, well, I asked the surgeon just to say it as it was. And and he was great. He just told me the two choices. You know, if the tumour came back malignant, I was staffed. And if it didn't, you know, my face would be impaired. And I just thought, well, that's all right. We're still not dead. And I, I remember thinking at the time, well, I've had a great life, you know. It's been great. I've really, I've been very fortunate to have great life with great people in it and great opportunities. So if this is it, it's it, you know, that's okay. So thankfully it wasn't. It was 30 years ago now. It was a long time ago. And um, every day I, I don't think about it at all. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I look like. I feel that I'm a very normal, appealing young woman. So you're not young now, but I'm not old either. Just I feel that life is not about how you look. Life is about what you stand for and the contribution that you make to others and um, the purpose um, that you have in your life and how willing and able you are to share your skills and your expertise and your commitment with others. So it's so much deeper than skin deep. And if I'm fortunate enough to have half a smile, I'm really good with that. So, and it doesn't stop me. And it never has. Like I've been on TV a lot. I um, have no problem with it. And I don't even think about it. It doesn't even enter my mind. In fact, I really, I really talk about it. It's just interesting that you knew about it and because um, I never talk about it. Only because it's just not even interesting. It's not even relevant to my life. It's not. But it, it, I guess it has shaped it a bit in the fact that I, I'm, I'm in a little, when I talked about my needing to learn a little bit more about patience and tolerance, I'm intolerant of people who are self-indulged. I'm intolerant of entitlement. I'm intolerant of people that think they are owed something or think that they've earned something and have an entitlement to it. So, I, but I just ignore it. I just move through it. I choose not to be around people like that. So, okay. yeah, and I choose not to, I certainly don't employ them. So, yeah. Can I ask you, back in that time, did it take you a while to arrive at this attitude or consciously straight away where you, did you have this resolve? No, I was just like, well, you know, I wasn't quite, I probably wouldn't have articulated it like that. Mm. Um, but I was so fortunate. I had this fantastic boss. God, he was a good bloke. And he, because he let me run, you know, like the good people, you know, the very best bosses and the great teachers, if you go through your whole life, you look at who is it that has made a difference to your life. And he was one of them. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But he just came to me and he said, look, what do you want to do, Robbie? And I said, I'll be back at work as soon as I can be. And I said, I reckon it'll take about six weeks 
And I said, I probably won't look that good, but, you know, that's all right, but I'll be feeling better. Anyway, so he said, you just come back whenever you like and do whatever you like, as in you just do the job, which was a lot of self-facing, like I was, like I had a lot of, I had a strong public profile in that job. So I just stepped back into it. I just didn't, there wasn't any, he was supportive. I was, you know, I was into it. Alistair was just amazing. He didn't mind. Nothing, no one didn't make any difference to anyone. So it didn't make a difference to me. Do you feel, I mean, I'm sure that you garnered so much respect from having that attitude and just facing up and showing up. I don't know. Maybe people didn't treat me any differently and um, could have could have done possibly, but I just um, continued just to work hard and to be the best I could be in the job that I did and also just be, be the best I could be around the people I was with. So, um, yeah, that's what mattered, yeah. So if we look at Sefton's today, I, I'm not sure how many staff you've got, but I can see 17 highly qualified women and men working for you on your, on your website. Um, yeah, are, are you tell me what it looks like today and how it's growing and how you've sailed the ship since age 28. Yeah, good question, Sky. Um, well, it's been through a lot of rough water. Um, I love my team. I'm so respectful of my team. I just walk on water for them. I just think they're amazing. And um, I think they're remarkable people and very good at their jobs. And um, so the business working in agriculture um, is sometimes challenging. We sometimes we progress. Um, it's hard work. That it's no one's given any tickets to ride in anything that they do. Um, and ag, I love. I just love ag, and I love farming, and I love rural and regional communities. Um, whilst I live, have lived and worked in all sorts of places around Australia, and some, and often have had the opportunity of working overseas, but being based here in Australia, but. I, um, Sefton's continues to evolve. It, I love change and I like, that's why I run my own business and that's why I, but the business is a consultancy because I like working in projects that change and, and we can be part of that, even if it's only small change. So, and I love working to a goal and a vision that, that's shared. I'm very fortunate I sit on some remarkable boards and I'm very privileged to sit on those boards. So um, one is Headspace, which I'm very honoured to be on that for young people with mental health challenges. Um, another is the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, um, the National Australia Day Council. So we get to choose the Australians of the Year. I'm the deputy chair of that. Um, the Soil CRC for High Performing Soils. Um, I sit on that as well. And um, so it's a bit like, in a strange way, being like a politician, but never being a politician. What's yeah. it like walking the um, halls of, of Parliament House and especially treading that, you know, flying the flag for Australian agriculture? It's great. I love it. I stand really tall in the saddle. I just, I enjoy it. I hold my, I mean, certainly hold my own. I'm quite, um, I'm not, I'm very assertive, but I'm very um, respectful in that assertiveness. I'm so I have a so my vision for rural and regional Australia is around 
creating, like always having a dynamic, prosperous rural and regional and remote Australia and one that's sustainable. So that's that socioeconomic and environment, but particularly has future for young people. So it's, to me, it's all about what are we looking for for our young people in the bush and also those ones that either leave the bush and go to the cities and then but do agricultural work or do work that supports us back in the bush. So, um, so I just live, I live from that vision. And so I find that I'm able to engage pretty much most people I talk to. I find a common ground and can always do that because I like listening to people. I like listening to their stories. I like understanding where they come from, as in what they stand for. And then I like to find how we can meet somewhere in the middle. So, and then once you can do that with anyone, you can usually do that pretty rapidly. Um, then you can actually start a dialogue and then they can start to learn and understand about rural and regional and remote Australia. And then I can understand about their worlds that they live and work in too. Do you think that that quality, the ability to listen, is the quality that has stood you in the best stead to be able to achieve what you've achieved? Or is it another quality? Um, certainly listening. Um, I could always improve with that, like all of us can. Um, I think it's also about being very agile and I'm very, I'm very intuitive. So my behaviour skill, my is one of my sk natural skills is to be intuitive. So I, I read the play very quickly and I understand what's going on. I can I have a vision of what is where things need could go and then I, I'm nimble in that. So I can I can manage a conversation in a way that takes the journey, takes that conversation or takes um, that that position in the direction I want it to go in with others if you know what i mean i'm interested from your perspective how um what's your vision for young people in rural australia in your words well i really love people that are entrepreneurial so i love it that and it doesn't matter how big that is it, does, it could either be uh, social entrepreneurialism which is making a difference for your communities through not-for-profits that type of thing but particularly I like people that like to start their own businesses or are involved in a business that takes it um, in a way that's going to make a difference to that either that industry, whether it's an agricultural industry or whether that's their rural and regional community. That journey of what is it that we can do collectively that can make a difference, that can actually keep this small town or this small community or our local town or our regional centre totally sustainable into the you know, next decade, into the future decades. And it's not about, as I talked about before, it's not about entitlement or I deserve this, et cetera. It's, so I still believe that, that, real, that those values really exist in the bush and um, people really care about each other. So it's about being caring and kind as well as having a, bloody hard go at something and never giving up and being smart about it and being around people who are smart and getting the best advice you can get from people and asking people you know talking to people and bringing them into your camp and, and things so that's what I want young people to be able to do and to feel comfortable in doing in rural and regional Australia you know it's not about making a lot of money I, I don't have a lot of money 
um, at all. But the journey, the life that I've had has brought me in contact with people who have and are continuing to shape Australia. And they're remarkable people and they are hardworking, committed people. Pat McGorry, who was the Australian of the Year in 2010, is a, a mental health practitioner and um, he's on the board of Headspace. It just so happens that we happen to be on the board together. And he has changed mental health and has worked so hard to encourage governments of, of both Labor and Liberal and coalition persuasions to invest more in mental health, particularly for young people. He and Ian Hickey, as well as others, have changed the face of mental health in Australia just by being deeply committed to that. Now, he's a normal bloke. So that's what makes the difference is no matter who you are in Australia, I still believe that you get up and you get out of bed every day with a passion to make a difference, no matter what that is. That could be being a very good parent. You know, that could be being the very best teacher you could be. That could be the very best carer you could be, or it could be a very good business person, whatever it is that you choose to do. But by being purposeful, by caring about other people and bringing them on the journey with you, with whatever it is that you do, that makes a difference. And I believe you still can do that in the bush. You can still do it in the city as well, but I reckon it's easier in the bush. It's great life out in the bush and it's cheaper. You know, you can buy a house in the bush, you can move around, you know, you can get a great life and you can have really great mates. Way more practical. <laughs> yeah, in some exactly. Ways. Robbie, I've yeah. got three more questions for you. A quote of yours that I read and I loved, which you've just sort of spoken to, is that I'm not doing this for my kids because I don't have any, um, I'm doing this for everybody else's kids in the bush. Is that something that you consciously think about? No, not really. I just really like young people. I get on well with them. Um, and I just, you know, kids are our future and we need to set things up for them in a way that, they've got permission to have a go and to get into it and to enjoy life. And, and the other thing I think is not to take it all too seriously. Like, geez, bloody hell, year 12. God, my God, if it had been like that when I was a kid, I definitely wouldn't have, one is I didn't get there anyway, but uh, uh, there's so much pressure. It's just hard yakka for them. So make sure the pressure's on in the right place and, um, being self-determining, creating your own destiny and shaping your own future, but by doing that with other people that care as well um, and not expecting anyone to do it for you. So, and I think that in rural and regional Australia, we need that attitude because, you know, we've got, for us in the future as young people, we need to be very aware of the consumer environment that we're moving into. I think COVID's been a really good thing in some ways, very challenging and not great for health, I'm, I'm very aware of that. But in some ways it's been a bit of a reset and it's had us have opportunity of looking at what the bush really means and um, that they, people might like to consider moving to the country and that they can actually understand their food and fibre a lot more and where it comes from and that it is grown with love and care and commitment and often in a very challenging financial um, environment. Well, Robbie, it's been an absolute highlight for me to be able to um, speak with you for an hour, more than an hour. So I just thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me on the podcast. 
Oh, thanks, Scott. It's been a delight. I really enjoyed it and really appreciate it. Do you know where that was recorded? In a stairwell in the airport. Don't you just love it? Despite all her successes and her notoriety, Robbie's not too precious for anything, and that's something I admire. Thanks, Robbie, for being our guest. Thank you also to our series sponsor, Blundstone, and to you, our favourite people, those who love these stories as much as we do. Thank you. The autumn edition of Grazie Her has been sent to the printers and will be with our subscribers before they know it. If you're not on our mailing list, you can subscribe for yourself and if you're feeling generous, maybe even for someone else you love, at grazieher.com.au. We'll be back next week with another story of life on the land. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.